This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we are welcoming you to week nine of our series from the book of Isaiah. We're calling it Isaiah, A Voice of Hope. And to Isaiah chapter 54. Uh, chapter 54 comes on the heels of chapter 53. We hope that you enjoyed that last week. And if you missed it, I do encourage you to go back and listen to last week's episode because it was an amazing walk through the chapter that is probably the most uh, crystal clear, explicit, and detailed prophecy of the Messiah, the suffering servant, uh, that you can find anywhere in Scripture. Psalm 22 maybe comes close, but Isaiah 53 is really it. Um, and Isaiah 54 comes on the heels of that. So, Sam, as we kind of go into chapter 54, coming out of the prophecy of the suffering servant, how do these two things connect? How does how does chapter 53's topic, which is the suffering servant, how does that now transition into what we're going to see here in chapter 54? Yeah, so the book of Isaiah has lifted up, you know, where Israel is going. God has laid down these prophetic lines where he's saying, you know, Israel is is falling. You know, the northern tribes of all getting getting conquered by mm-hmm. the Assyrians and Judah and Jerusalem are going to fall and it'll be you know, a little bit more than a century after Isaiah writes this, that Jerusalem and Judah actually fall to the Babylonians. But God is saying, that day is coming. Right. And so, he's given bad news. If you lived in Jerusalem at the time of Isaiah's writing, it seems like everything is just steadily declining. Like, there's there's not a lot of optimism. There's not a lot of hope with what you can see with your eyes. Everything looks pretty dire, actually. But then God starts talking about this servant. And he's saying, you know, he's going to come and he's going to bear all of your iniquities and chastisement's going to be upon him and he's going to take the punishment. And it's totally describing Jesus. And so you have these these two players in the story. One is the, God's people, the nation of Israel, and they're, you know, it's not going to go well for them, right? right? They're going to fall into exile. But then God sends this suffering servant and it's going to go really badly for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going to take on all of the grief and anxieties and you know the the sin and the punishment and everything else. So then when you get to Isaiah chapter 54, all of a sudden, you know, the the nation of Israel, the people of God who have been given so much bad news about what's coming, God now suddenly could, their circumstances haven't changed. Right. Nothing nothing looking forward is like, okay, now I'm just kidding, you're not going into exile. That doesn't happen. Right. But God tells them Shout for joy, sing, sing, and so it's like it's it's singing, regardless of the fact that your circumstances that you can see with your own eyes don't look all that different. But now you have hope, and this suffering servant that is a, that has achieved peace with God for you, and now here are, here's why, even in the midst of a broken world that's filled with pain that is absent of. <laughs> of any reason why we can look with our eyes and say, hooray, hooray. Like, now because of him, you can sing even in the hardest times. Mm. So this is a, a look to a, a better future that's made possible by the actions of the suffering servant. Right. Yeah. And now you have a hope that is solid, mm-hmm. and you know that your future, ultimately your future with him, is going to be extraordinarily wonderful and fruitful and and prosperous and victorious even though you can't see it right now yeah so let's uh, let's jump right into isaiah chapter 54 beginning in verse 1 where it reads sing o barren you who have not borne break forth into singing and cry aloud you who have not labored with child for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman says the lord enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare, 
lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Um, Starts right off here with this image of a barren woman. Uh, what's the significance of, of looking, you know, what's God saying by, you know, you are barren, but you're going to rejoice. How do we start from that position of barrenness? So barrenness is a, first off, it's a huge theme that runs yeah. all throughout the scriptures. I mean, there are so many of the, the patriarchs that, that suffer through barrenness and they're, you know, the idea is here's something that cannot bring forth life. It can't bring forth fruitfulness. And yet God repeatedly through, you know, so many of these faithful women, Sarah was barren and God overcame her barrenness. Rebecca was barren and God overcame her barrenness. Uh, Rachel was barren. Hannah was barren. You get the impression in the New Testament that Elizabeth was barren and she's elderly without kids. And God just comes in repeatedly with all of these different women, and he brings life where life once seemed impossible, which in the Old Testament is huge because especially those days, like even to this day, if, if, if somebody is unable to have children, it's, it's a source of, of crushing pain and grief. And I've, you know, I've counseled people, I'm sure you have too, that mm-hmm. have struggled with this, who've wanted to have children who were unable to, and it's, a, it's an especially deep source of pain. And the ancient world, that was only magnified, you know, multiple times because when you were, were looking to have kids, it wasn't just, you know, oh, I want to have a child that I can pour myself into. I mean, it was, it was your legacy. They viewed almost your life. If you didn't have children, you had no one to pass on your legacy to. You had no one who was going to be working in the fields to take on the property because the elderly were so dependent upon the youth providing it because it was an agrarian society, remember? Sure, sure. When you got elderly or when you were widowed, if you didn't have children, you had no one to take care of you. So it was essentially a death sentence. You would starve to death or you'd Mm. become a beggar. And so the idea of having children, they looked at it is almost like that's that's your worth that's your value and that's why if you go into the ancient world all these different cultures have gods of fertility and the gods of fertility were considered the the highest in the pantheons of gods in all these ancient cultures mm-hmm. because this was so important yeah and so when when it comes and says sing o barren it's totally counterintuitive. Yeah. It's saying, you know, but it, and I don't think what what Isaiah is doing here is he's not just talking to to a group of people and saying, hey, all of you who can't have children, that's that's not what he's saying here. Though that's the comparison, it's the metaphor. What he's saying is, you out there that are longing for more, you want something more from this life, but everything you touch seems to be withering, and this world. All the stuff that you pour your life into and your hopes and everything else, they all seem to crumble and pass between your fingers and nothing seems to take root and blossom. Sing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. How does that work? Sing, you who can't bring forth true life and fertility and fruitfulness. And now all of a sudden that becomes, he's not just speaking to women who can't have children. That's now the human condition. That's the condition of Israel. It's like, even for the remnant back then, you know, sing, those of you that cannot bring forth fruitfulness. Yeah, yeah. that was something that I said in uh, personal worship this week, right in the introduction. I said, before you get hung up, you know, it talks about the barren woman, and it talks about widowhood. Like, before you guys get at all worried about gender here, let me remind you <laughs> that in this story, there is only one husband, and that's mm-hmm. the Lord God himself. <laughs> mm-hmm. When we yeah. look at chapter 54, we are all the wife, you know, so it, this is a genderless reference, like you're saying. The other thing, too, is that, you know, today, somebody who's childless, that's a very intimate and personal pain. It's mm-hmm. felt just as deeply. It's There's all the same things as you were saying, all the same, you know, ramifications within their lives. But it doesn't carry the stigma that it did back then, because back in those times, back in ancient times, it was almost viewed as a judgment by God. Mm-hmm. It's like if you didn't have children, 
somebody sinned. Somebody did something terrible. God doesn't love you. And it became a very public thing. So there's a lot of stigma associated here. So it's not just Mm -hmm. the fact that you haven't been able to be fruitful, but that Mm -hmm. it's notoriously so. You've, you know, that kind of thing. So the Lord is almost saying, even in the face of your public embarrassment or public lack, still sing. If you go back to the beginning, when God started calling a people to himself, he starts with Abraham in chapter 12. And it's it's fascinating to me how, how he does this, but he calls Abraham out of a Mesopotamian city, mm-hmm. and he says to Abraham, hey, I want you to come with me. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you, you know, he'll say this elsewhere, I'm going to give you descendants that number like the stars and the sands of the seashore. But then he gives them a, a, a promise, and he says, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. And one of the things that most people don't realize about Abraham's past is he's coming out of a city called Haran, and he's before that a city Ur. And the thing that those two cities had in common is they both worshipped the same pagan god, which was a god named Nana. It's a male god, but spelled Nana, and it was the god of fertility. And so what you know about Abraham is he's 75 years old, and he's got a barren wife and who's unable to have children, and yet his primary god, the god that's worshipped by everybody in his city – is the god of fertility. And so he would have been an outcast in some sense. He's got all the wealth. He's got a great you know, family. His father's wealthy and everything else. But he can't have kids. And so God comes along and says, leave everything you know. Leave your fertility, God. I'll give you children. Yeah. And Abraham's like, ooh. And, he, and listen to what God says, because you imagine when Abraham walks around. And by the way, the name Abram in Hebrew literally means exalted father. And so even that's even that is like it's a source of shame. His name sure. is reminding him of his failures. And God says, "I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse you. Curse those who curse you." And why would that have been appealing to Abraham? Because he knew the pain of barrenness. He knew what it meant. Like you talked about with the stigma, he knew what it was like to walk around and be cursed. He yeah. knew what it was like for people to look at him and say something's wrong with him. And so God picks up this whole theme of barrenness where it doesn't seem like life is possible to come out of this situation. You know, and by the time they have kids, Sarah's 90, and you go, well, that's absurd. Yeah. It is absurd. It's meant to be absurd. That's impossible, right? Unless God yeah. moves. Yeah. And so this whole theme of barrenness carries on throughout the whole Old Testament. And here, what Isaiah is saying, to all of us, is in your own efforts, you're barren. You cannot make life continue. You're utterly barren if it's about you. But with that character that we just read about in Isaiah 53, the one who overcomes death, sing, O barren, because life is going to come out of you. In Genesis chapter 13, when uh, the Lord is talking to Abram, his name had not been changed at that point after Lot had departed from him. It's mm-hmm. the Lord tells Abram, he says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. You know, <laughs> so right then he's giving him this prophecy of this multitude. And in fact, isn't that what Abraham means as father of a multitude? Yeah. So God's going to change his name and he does all, he makes this promise. He changes his name. He does all of that before Abraham has any children at all. Mm-hmm. It's the same idea. He's yeah. looking at somebody who's who's got a barren wife. There's no possibility. And he's like, I'm changing your name <laughs> yeah. because you're going to be a multitude. So it's, and he's allowing Abraham to claim something that he can't see with his own two eyes. Yeah. And he's teaching. All through the story of Abraham, God is teaching him, believe me, believe me. You may not yeah. be able to see it with your own eyes, but trust me, it's yeah. coming. And by the end of Abraham's life, he's transformed and he's learned to trust God, yeah. which, you know, slowly but surely, you know, God is doing that with us here. Um, because it's hard when you look around and you look at the news and you grieve how upside down and painful this world is through personal experiences or just by watching the news at night. You know, you think, gosh, there's, there's no life anywhere. It just seems so broken. And the Lord comes to us and says, okay, yeah, you're, you're, you're not blind. You see how painful the world is. It looks utterly barren. But do you know who I am? Do you know what my promises are? Then sing. <laughs> because life will win in the end. 
You know, and um, as the story of Abraham goes, we know that Sarah's first idea was that Ab- that she took her her slave Hagar and mm-hmm. sent her into Abraham. You know, Abraham and Sarah were going to help God with this barren problem. Clearly, the Lord has. <laughs> He's made this promise, but he's not doing anything. You know, Abraham, we got to help this guy out here a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, a, you know, a son, Ishmael, is born, but that wasn't the child of promise. God promised Abraham and Sarah. And then they had, of course, their son, Isaac, who became that father of the nation Israel. Or, but we were talking about this this morning in personal worship. Abraham, after Sarah's death, got married again to Keturah and had another six children. Who, mm-hmm. who again? That you know, those weren't the children of God's promise, and some of them I don't even know that we know anything about what happened to them. Others of them, their <laughs> descendants became bitter enemies of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so, when God makes a promise. God's blessing is going to work through that promise. And that's another thing that we need to remember is that when God has promised something, it doesn't mean for us to try to find a way around that. Or it doesn't mean, you know, we're to rely on God's promises because through those promises, are, he's going to bring the greatest blessing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard sometimes. It's I don't necessarily blame Abraham and Sarah for being a little impatient. They were oh, watching yeah. the clock tick. They were <laughs> seeing them get older and older and thinking, you know, I don't know how this is going to work. At some point, they're thinking, we got to help God out here. He's just a little sure. slow off the line, you know. Uh, I'll be honest. If if I'm Abraham, I'm I'm pulling the triggers a lot quicker than he did. Yeah, because you know, yeah. he, he, I mean, he's seventy five when he receives this promise from God. He picks up and leaves everything, goes to this new land, and it's not like, hey, okay, Sarah's pregnant the next year. They wait twenty four years for God to make good on that. And yeah. the whole time, through that hardship, right? Through that, through, like, God, have you forsaken me? Have you forgotten about me? God is teaching them that he's utterly trustworthy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, I don't know how long into it, 15 years or 20 years or so, um, is when Abraham's like, uh, he listens to Sarah's advice. Well, maybe maybe we should have a kid through her. Yeah. You know, she's not barren. Yeah. Um, well, and you know, and we talk about Abraham was seventy five this, and and then was a hundred there, and we do have to we do have to recognize that human lifespans in the, you know, Abraham was am I was he six generations after the flood or less than that? He might have only been three generations after the flood, right? I think he's more than three. Okay, but it's 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 very it's, it's a short a time. It's a handful yeah. of generations after the flood, and human lifespans prior to the flood were extremely long centuries long and then immediately after the flood they began to shorten up until by the time we get into you know we're, we're talking about david and something their lifespan was very similar to our own today mm-hmm. uh, actually shorter because their medicine wasn't as good you know mm-hmm. um but abraham lived to be 175 so yeah. 75 was middle-aged for him. It's like he <laughs> – it is kind of important, though, to understand that it wasn't like Abraham was 75 like we'd be 75 going, hey, Lord, I'll leave my town and go. You know, he still had some vitality to him. <laughs> yeah, and people apparently thought Sarah was attractive at yeah. a pretty elderly age. Yes, so she was just middle-aged also, yeah. Yeah, there's all kinds of people who talk about, well, maybe the, their calendar system was different or whatever. Um Regardless, the scriptures want you to realize this is miraculous. Yes. One, she's barren. Two, she's old. Like even right. Sarah, when she overhears God promising Abraham, this time next year you're going to have a son. I think it's in Genesis 18. And she laughs at God saying, will he really give me a son at this old age? So right. she recognizes like she's postmenopausal. Let's just right. put it out there. Yeah. You know? yeah. This, there, there's no more eggs left. Like, it's like she's – She's recognizing this is this is a physical impossibility. Yeah, it would be like a fifty-five or sixty-year-old woman today being told you're going to have a child. You know, it was just something that she's like, "Really, Lord? <laughs> That's not going to work." I, Lord, do you know how babies are made? You know, it's not going to. It's not going to. That kind of thing. So, but it's similar to you know, hey Mary, you're going to have a baby. Uh, yeah. Excuse me. Let's have a conversation about biology. Similar you know? to, but 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 interestingly enough, the mirror image. It's like he mm-hmm. speaks to Sarah. And says, you're going to have a child, and Sarah's like, I'm too old. He speaks to Mary and says, you're going to have a child, and Mary's like, I'm, you know, 
how am I going to have a child? I'm too young. I'm not even married yet. Mm-hmm. And the Lord's like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've got that under control. You know, it's, it's kind of the it's the mirror image miracle. That's interesting. I've never really thought about that before, but. Mm-hmm. Both of them, both promises were made to somebody who, biologically speaking, it wasn't possible. They mm-hmm. were at opposite ends of the spectrum. But it's, it's. I mean, it, it's all looking forward to the resurrection when, yeah. when the angel is, is talking to the women. You know, he's not here. He's risen. Everybody's kind of like, wait, what? That doesn't work. You don't understand yeah. biology. Yeah. <laughs> and the whole, the whole point of the, the, the scriptures are teaching you, whether it's through Sarah or whether it's through the virgin birth or whether it's through the resurrection – that God doesn't obey the rules of death. Yeah. He yeah. overcomes barrenness and death. He brings forth life where life seems impossible, whether that's physical life to your body or it's life in a broken marriage or broken dreams or whatever it might be. The power of the resurrection brings withering things to life. Yeah. And that's at the core of the Christian faith. Well, that's one thing that we've talked about. Uh, we've had 130 podcasts now, so at different times we've talked about this. But – you know, humanity regards death as the ultimate enemy. It's like the one mm-hmm. intractable thing that you can't escape. Everything dies, and yet the message of the Bible is not with God. Not mm-hmm. with God. With God, death is not the enemy anymore. God has beat God has conquered that. And that's the message of the Christian faith, which is Death is no longer the inevitable end of all things. It's like the Lord mm-hmm. will brings life from death. And that's when you when you remove that final enemy, that final intractable, unavoidable, undefeatable enemy. You also remove the fear that's associated with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's true, and it's it's so counterintuitive. And so this what you read is here: you have a woman who's barren, and God is saying you're going to need to expand your tent. Yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah. You're, <laughs> you know, you need to go ahead, even though none of your circumstances have changed. You're, you know, it's not like you're pregnant right now. You're barren. Yeah. But you need to you need to really enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings, because good Lord, you're going to have a multitude of descendants. Yeah. Um, and that's that's his word to Israel as they're shrinking, as as tribes are being conquered and defeated and sent into exile. He's like, yeah, we're going to have an expansion project right around the corner, and Israel's <laughs> going. I can't, I can't imagine this. How is the kingdom of God going to expand? We're on the verge of exile and being totally wiped out. And God's like, yeah, we're going to need a bigger tent. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens after Jesus comes. So Isaiah 53, right? What happens? The, the suffering servant comes. He accomplishes what he accomplishes. So think you know, the coming of Jesus. He does his ministry. And what happens after that? The kingdom of God blows up all over the world, and God literally will take the kingdom of God, and he will stretch the tent to every single nation under heaven, every continent on the earth. There are children of Abraham, of the barren woman, right, children of of Sarah and the son of promise that now live and dwell in every nation under heaven. The tent needed to be expanded. And so what he says to us is in your barrenness, don't you put limits on me. When you can't see hope, when it looks like there's no possibility of life, you expand the tent. Wait and see what I'm going to do. You're going to have to lengthen your cords, and you're going to need some stronger stakes also, because this is a big tent. It's going to be spread <laughs> all over. Um, you know, I have a. It's it's funny that you say the uh, the children of Abraham in every nation and all around the world. I have a, I have a very broad range of of friends and acquaintances, I, and I like mm-hmm. that. I really do. And one of them, who's somebody who I really like, and we get along very well. We have some very interesting conversations. She is a Wiccan. Mm-hmm. And uh, she refers to me as a follower of the Abrahamic religion. That's her. That's her <laughs> nice. name for me. She says you're a follower of the Abrahamic religion. To be a child of Abraham does not mean that you come from that bloodline. That's correct. So the New Testament, when Abraham is first given a promise, just for those of you that have never heard that before. It says that through Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, all nations on earth are going to be blessed. And so, you know, you you walk down the line of Abraham to Isaac to Jacob Mm -hmm. to Judah and on down until you get to Jesus. And through Jesus, all of these people through faith are adopted as the sons and daughters of God and were grafted in to become children of Abraham. So in Galatians chapter 3, it says this, which is straight up. It just puts it out there. It says, those who have faith – 
are children of Abraham. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so when we sing songs like Father Abraham, which (laughs) if I ever talk about Abraham in a middle school classroom, that song is coming. But we sing, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. So that's where it comes from. If you have faith in Christ, you're grafted in as a child of Abraham. The promise given to Abraham is now the same promise given to you. Just all you have to do is just read anything. Read all the stuff that Paul wrote. He will explain this to you. (laughs) That is correct. That is correct. Galatians three seven. Um, okay, so uh, let's chapter four, verse one. Yeah, verse one. Well, this is one, two, and three. We did three verses here. Oh, yeah, that's in, right. That's right. In the first half hour. Um, <laughs> so let's look at uh, in verse four through six. He says, uh, "Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore." For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. So we move from this picture of the barren woman, no you know, no continuing life, the stigma and everything else, and then we move right into widowhood, <laughs> which is not, as I said, that's like being out of the frying pan and into the fire. You know, there's, mm-hmm. um, if you were a widow in that society, also, you were sort of regarded as like, kind of like, can I say it, like a leftover? It's like, okay, we've got mm-hmm. to take care of you, but you're really not doing anything useful anymore. If you're not married to somebody, you're not popping out children, you're just another mouth to feed. Mm-hmm. And and they were seen as cursed. Why would God allow this to happen to her? And in the ancient world, very much unlike today, um, if you were a woman, you had no rights to go and make livelihood. You had no property rights. You had to remarry or find a man to attach your property rights too. So if you were a widow, you were in a very, very precarious situation as to how you were going to care for yourself. And so that was seen as like, why Why would that happen to anyone? Why would God allow that? And so you were seen as cursed. And what I love about the Lord and the scriptures, it's there's, there's four categories that the Lord is always, four categories of people that the Lord is just repeatedly saying, I am a God of these people. And it's the widow, it's the orphan, it's the foreigner, and the poor. Yeah. You can go through the scriptures again and again, and you will find that God especially looks after those people, and he expects his people to take care of those people. You know, you take care of widows, you take care of orphans. That's true in undefiled religion in the New Testament, according yeah. to James. Um, you take care of the poor, you take care of the foreigner. And, and so what he is saying here is, you know, you're widowed, which means what? All these all these things that you've given your heart to, right? All these things that you've poured your life into, that you've you've held up as kind of your husband in life, have all left you and you're abandoned. They've all died. They couldn't save you. So whether it was wealth or power or whatever, you know, in some sense you've been widowed and now you're without a husband. There's mm-hmm. no one no one to rescue you anymore. Um and then he comes in with this really wonderful news your maker is your husband like holy cow like so wonderful and there's some bad news that comes it's like you will forget the shame of youth you will not remember the reproach of your widowhood you know god is promising us here that in that you know in that new heavens and in that new kingdom in the kingdom of god it's more than just oh yes i remember that i can i've learned to live with it god lets me live with it but rather it's like we're not going to remember it anymore hmm. you, know? you know one of my favorite passages in isaiah where it's talking about how god is going to do away with the shame and mm-hmm. reproach of his people comes sure. in isaiah 25 the reason why that's fresh in my mind is it's one of the scriptures that we've settled on for my mom's funeral she hasn't passed away yet But she's coming to the end, and in Isaiah 25 it says, He, meaning the Savior, He will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people. In other words, that widow's veil is the idea, this black veil that's over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. Mm. And He will swallow up death forever. Like how incredible a prophecy is that? He is going to be the one who drinks that cup all to Himself. 
and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke yeah. of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And so all of that shame, you know, the rebuke that his people have, the tears mm-hmm. that they are crying, he's going to swallow it all and wipe away our tears. And it's it's just this this kindness, you know. He's dealing with people who 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 are really widowed from all the stuff that they love. All the stuff dies, you know. If if when I'm, in my conversations with my mom, when I say what were, what are you most proud of in your life, and she's looking back, you know, at, at this body of work and decades of life, none of it is the stuff that we give our lives to that take up all of our attention. It's almost entirely her marriage, her husband, her kids, or you know, her walk with God, like. Yeah. Everything else is is meaningless at this point of life when you're on the verge of death. And, you know, she's – all that stuff leaves you widowed. Yeah. It doesn't save you. It, it, it dies. But your maker, your family, those are immortal things that, that go on forever. And so here's God saying, you know, I'm going to take all that stuff away for your maker, your husband. All that other stuff that lets you down is dead and gone but your maker is your husband. That's just such a cool line. So um, verses 7 and 8, I have some questions about. <laughs> Verse 7 is, For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. When I read those the first time as I was studying this chapter, getting ready to do personal worship last week, mm-hmm. I thought it's kind of interesting because God's almost saying, yes, I I did turn away from you for, for a while. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, we did – I'm not going to do this anymore. There's going to be – it's promises that – you know, he's going to promise that he will never do this again, but he's acknowledging that there was this rupture, uh, this rift between them in the past. Mm-hmm. Um those things that he's referring to here, like when he says, I've, I've forsaken you and I've hid my face from you, those were things that were brought on by the wickedness and apostasy of Israel, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just so what, what he's talking about, and you'll see the fulfillment of this coming in Jeremiah where it actually describes what happens. But God is looking at, at Jerusalem and he's saying, oh my goodness, you are falling into the worst sorts of wickedness. You're yeah. spitting in my face. You are, you are doing things that are so unjust to people. You're abusive and everything else. And he says, turn, turn, turn. And then he says, you know, if you don't, I will remove my glory from the temple, and it describes it. The the glory of God comes out of the temple and goes over the Mount of Olives and leaves Jerusalem for a season. But he announces through Jeremiah, this is going to be for a season. It's just for several decades. And the reason for that is, you know, it's the same thing when you do marriage counseling. Um, If I have a situation where a couple, and I got to be careful how I say this, but where a couple is mistreating one another or one of them is unfaithful, let's say, and they are, you know, running around on the spouse, but the spouse that's being essentially abused in that situation, taken for granted, taken advantage of, is wanting to save the marriage. You know, there are times where the right thing to do is to say you need a structured separation from each other because it's clear that they are just exploiting you. And you're not loving them by allowing them to exploit you. I'm not saying divorce, but I'm saying they need to feel the pain of what they're doing. It's not loving to just enable them to continue on this road. And so it's kind of a wake-up call. And I think that's it's out of love that God says, for a mere moment, he stresses that, for a mere moment, and the word forsaken is very strong, but it's just, I'm leaving. For a mere moment, I'm leaving you, but with great mercies, I will gather you. And so it's like he's saying, my faithfulness is not wavering. Right. I'm there. But so that you understand what it's like when you spit in my face and you try to do life without me, I'm going to allow you several decades in Babylonian exile to experience what it's like to have life without me. Yeah. It's loving. Yeah. As 70 years in exile must have felt like 700 (laughs) to them. Uh, But in terms of, of God's time frame, it was the merest moment. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is true, actually. If you're if if you have the perspective of I'm looking at this from an eternal perspective, seventy years can't even be measured. It's such a small mm-hmm. flicker of time that it can't be measured. I think the other thing that I though I would say is that 
if we were talking to somebody about this and says, well, the Lord, you know, the Lord turned away from Israel uh, because of their great wickedness and their fall into apostasy. So, but Mark, you're telling me that the Lord will never turn away from me now. Why, you know, why want that? And and I would say that the answer is because we're on the other side of the suffering servant, that that the suffering servant took on him all of the iniquities, all of the sins, all of the wickedness, and and put all of that to death on the cross. And that God's promises mm-hmm. now, God's statement of unwavering favor and faithfulness to us now is that way. It's unwavering. It's faithful. It's forever because it's no longer dependent on whether I don't fall away or I don't get caught up into apostasy. It's dependent upon that servant. It's dependent Mm -hmm. upon Jesus. And that's the reason now that our relationship with God is so secure is because we're not the ones it depends on. Mm Mm-hmm. And and by the way, the the ethic of this doesn't change in the New Testament, even though it's your salvation is entirely built upon God's righteousness, not your own. Right, <laughs> you know, right. You're saved because He's good enough, not because you're good enough. But even in the situation like where we have to do church discipline, you're on the session, you're an elder, you know, you know about this really well. If you have somebody who's who's claiming to be a Christian and a member of good standing in your congregation, right? And let's say that they're you know out doing something horrendous, they're beating dogs or whatever, right? You know, and you're like that can't continue. You can't do that and consider yourself a member in good standing at Rio Vista Community Church. So we need to discipline you. So someone goes to that person and says, "Hey, you need to stop doing this." And if they say, "Absolutely, this is Matthew 18. Absolutely not. I'm going to continue doing this." And then you take another person, you go to them, and you say, "Hey, we really, you know, for the good of your soul, you need to stop doing this." And if they dig in, you go with the full authority of the church. And if they still dig in for the purpose of restoring that person, you're actually supposed to put them outside of church membership for a while. That does not mean that God has forsaken them. That doesn't mean that they've necessarily lost their salvation. But what it does mean is you need a wake-up call. And we love you too much to endorse the kind of destructive behavior that you're in right now. Like, I'm not just going to pretend like everything's okay because you're destroying not only yourself, but you're hurting others around you, and we're not quiet for that. That's the kind of that's the kind of love that God is showing here in in this passage. Where I hey, and notice notice how he contrasts because he's very very intentional about contrasting for a mere moment. You know, he he stresses that a mere moment, but then he says that his mercies are everlasting; right. they never run out. So he wants you to understand your discipline is for a moment, but his faithfulness to you is everlasting. Yeah. Yeah, it was Paul in the New Testament who was writing saying, you know, this person, I've I've handed them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that their mm-hmm. soul might be saved. That's uh, exactly right, yeah. It's it's a Good. when you when you read something like that, you're like, "What?" <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me, Paul, you did what? <laughs> um, but I think that that's what Paul is saying is that we're putting them outside of the of the fellowship. We're we're mm-hmm. separating from them. That handing over to Satan um, wasn't some kind of ritual where they tied him up in a pentagram and and staked <laughs> him to the ground. Paul's saying, "I'm putting them out from the church. I'm I'm ejecting him outside, um, and and basically in that respect, handing them over to uh, to Satan." Um, it's an intervention. It's a it spiritual is. intervention. It is uh, because you love that person. It, and it was the – that was the peak. You know, that was like Paul's like, hey, that's that's as far as we can go, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, I mean, if you got to think – back in these days, remember, they're they're doing all sorts of things. Their, their worship to pagan gods is unbelievably scandalous. I mean, they were engaged in, you know, cult prostitution and child sacrifice, and they're doing all kinds of really awful things. And, you know, it's like if I told you, hey, Mark, I'm going to do some of that kind of stuff, for the sake of my soul, it would be the most unloving thing imaginable for you to say, well, you know, whatever makes you happy, Sam. I just I just want you to know that you're loved no matter what. Yeah, you do that you, would man. Be, that's what, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's not loving. No. The loving thing to do is to do whatever it is you can to break that spell over me. And so when the Lord comes and says, hey, I'm going to let you experience the consequence of this. This is what life is like without me. You're going to go into exile. You're going to feel the slavery. You're going to feel all of this. 
but man, is it going to make you hunger for the days when you had me. And that's ultimately going to be the best thing for the people of God. It happens again and again in my own life, right? You know, it's it's not when my life is going, you know, roses and everything is wonderful where I think, you know what, I need to draw closer to God because I'm a wicked idiot, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's it's when everything's falling apart that I'm like, man, I need you. I need you. So I kind of feel like what God does next here is that he's saying, I, I'm, I'm a little worried, you know, Sam and Mark, that maybe you didn't really understand what I meant when I said – everlasting. Um, you know, I'm a little <laughs> concerned that you don't really get the concept here. And so in verses 9 and 10, he gives us some examples. Verse 9, he says, For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed But my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. And it's almost as though he's like, hey, you know what? I need you to understand the eternal nature of these promises. Just as with the flood of Noah, it's like I've set my bow, you know, in the in the sky. We, we can look mm-hmm. out today and see that rainbow and say that's God promised that He's never again going to flood the earth. And we all know, yeah, I mean, we know how much time is involved in running water you know eroding the the, it's like the grand canyon oh yeah that's just you know took however long to what he's saying here is however long it would take for that mountain to erode for those hills to dissolve that almost unimaginable period of time would pass and my kindness will still be there He's like That's he's good. giving us the greatest examples he can think of to say this is a this is a, a period you know if if the biggest stretch of time you can imagine Mount Everest is worn away by wind and rain however many billions of years that takes my kindness is still going to be with you I think it's cool That's good it's a great I love that. it's a great picture yeah I had I I didn't put that like the idea of erosion together That's really cool. But I love, like, I remember hearing this from Dr. Gage. It was the first time I'd ever heard this, where when God sets his rainbow in the sky, you know, that a bow was the, the warrior's weapon, you know, back in the ancient world. And so when God puts the bow in the sky, where is the bow pointed? It's pointed away from earth and toward heaven. And so how do we get peace with God? Well, the bow is aimed at heaven, and its target is there. So God's wrath ultimately fires, and that bow fires up into the heavens. I mean, it's all it's it's imagery, but it's going to strike Christ, and He is the basis for our peace with God. Right. And I love the fact that the, one of the other places that the rainbow is mentioned in in the scriptures is that there's a rainbow that encircles the throne of God. Mm-hmm. So that reminder of His covenant of peace with us is always surrounding Him. It's always there, right in front of His face. He can't possibly forget it. Um, that's how devoted and dedicated he is to this covenant, which is just – it's awesome. It's comforting. And and again, you know, when you read something like that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you, and you're sitting there saying, Mark, how can God not be angry with me? You know, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. I can say to you, it doesn't matter what you've done. The reason God is not angry at you, the reason that God is peace, has peace with you is because of what the servant did. It's like, that's mm-hmm. why this, that's why chapter 54 comes after chapter 53. That's right. It's like, you know, the Lord has laid on him. It's like this, it's, Everything that you have done or will ever do is another stripe on the servant, but he took all those stripes. And so you find yourself now on on the side of it where God is saying to you, I will always be at peace with you. I will not be angry with you because someone else stood in your place. I think that's a, you know, these kinds of promises almost seem a little incredible. You you read things like this and you're like, no, 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 God's going to be angry at me. I'm going to do things wrong. I'm like, no, no, you are forever at peace with God now because of the righteousness of that servant, because of the righteousness of his son. You don't really, if you feel like it's not enough, if you feel like what Jesus did is not enough, then you don't understand what Jesus did. Mm-hmm. And who he is. Yeah. I mean, good grief. I mean, God on a cross, what what more payment could be needed? Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, your debt is paid. Yes. So then this last um, – and, and all these this, – this last kind of group sort of all goes together because it's sort of this prophecy of – of prosperity and and peace <laughs> and things like that, just all, you know, kind of all wrapped together. Verse 11, O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and, I, and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. You know, I, I, you think about those two verses, Sam. The first thing that occurs to me is that God's promise to the afflicted one what it sounds like if you're if you're just kind of reading it at the surface level is so God's going to give me a lot of cash to deal with my afflictions. <laughs> <laughs> now obviously that's not what it's saying. So what's with the imagery of all the gems here? What's God oh, saying to us? You've you've mentioned this before to me and I think it's beautiful. You know, how how do these things get made? How do sapphires and rubies and crystal get made? Mm-hmm. Well, they get made from being buried in darkness under tremendous pressure. Yeah. And all of this is saying, you know, the city that's being built is coming out of that. It's out of suffering and out of pressure that sapphires and rubies come. Even that in verse 11, how the, the new King James uh, translates this and says, "I will, I will lay your stones with colorful gems." It's, it's not the best translation, so not to pick on this, but if you go, it's literally, "I'm going to set these stones in antimony." And what antimony is, is if you look at the Hebrew word, it's most, it's translated "eye makeup." It's dark, it's eye shadow. And so what he's saying is, "I'm going to set the most beautiful stones, and I'm going to surround it with this kind of dark eye makeup." Why? Because when it's surrounded by darkness, these stones are going to just shine more brilliantly than they would just anywhere else. And so, I mean, it's why, you know, you'll see women who, who put dark you know, around their eyes or eyelashes. They want them darker so that their eyes pop more. And, you know, this, that's kind of the theme of what he's getting at here in part as he's saying – through all the pressure, through everything else you're going through, surrounded by darkness, I am going to make the city that I am building out of, you know, for my kingdom, out of these precious things that are forged through the greatest of pressures. And when you get to the New Testament, when you get to Revelation 21, all this is fulfilled. It's talking about the New Jerusalem. So what happens? In, in Revelation 21, John's given a vision of heaven, the heavenly city, coming down from the Lord for all of us to dwell in. And I mean, this is figurative language, but it's beautiful. And how does it describe the walls and the foundations? It's all these precious stones. So that's ultimately going to be fulfilled, but it introduces that whole description of the new Jerusalem coming down with this incredible description that the Lord is declaring, there will be no more death and there's going to be no more pain and no more suffering, no more crying. He's going to wipe away all of your tears. And then out of heaven comes you know, this city that's built out of the faithful faithfulness through the tears. You know, it's, it's all of these precious stones, these living stones, which is what the New Testament calls believers. We're living stones that are being put together to form a temple for the Lord God to dwell in. That's, that's in a sense, a picture of heaven. And so that's where my mind goes with this because it starts, oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed, not comforted. You're in a hard world. Your pain and your suffering is real. And yet what is God going to do with all that pain and suffering? He's going to turn it to gems, and he's going to build a city out of it, a beautiful city. Well, that's what he's doing. Hmm. Yeah, in verse 11, I've always kind of liked how the Christian Standard Bible translated it. It says, I will set your stones in black mortar. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it is. And and what's interesting is when it says the battlements are made of rubies, well, what is that? They're bright red stones, and the gates are made of – it says crystal in the, in the New King James and in the NASB, but the word there is carbuncle. So the carbuncle, like if you look it up, the first place it'll take you to is it's another word for like boils that show up on your skin. But it's also a cluster of crystals that are deep red, and the the Hebrew word behind it is actually flame. And so it's like what he's saying is I'm going to make the gates look like they're just on fire, you know, with this stone 
that looks like fire, uh, and it's it's going to be radiant and amazing, super colorful. So sapphires, you got the the bright blue and reds, and it's it's saying he's making a beautiful city, but that's coming out of all this great pressure. Yeah, transformed. Yeah, yeah it makes me think of uh, <clears throat> the from Revelation chapter twenty one uh, verses mm-hmm. nineteen to twenty one, where it talks about. Uh, the beauty of the city. And it, again, it talks about the walls are adorned with precious stones and jasper mm-hmm. and sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, sardius. There's like all these different colors, and it really is the colors of the rainbow. It's like it, yeah. it's a you know, it's all these. It's just very cool, you know. Um, it's God, the interior designer. <laughs> <laughs> So verse 13 says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Um, If your protection is the Lord, if your promise is Mm -hmm. the Lord, you're not oppressed. You're not in terror. You're not fearful because you've got something far better. Whatever whatever the world is using as that bludgeon to hit you, your promises from the Lord are far greater. Mm-hmm. And and you notice, like he, he's saying, tyranny will be far from you. And he has spent you know a significant portion of the rest of the earlier part of this book saying, "Hey, a tyrant's going to come and conquer you." And so, what is this not talking about? It's saying, "In righteousness, you'll be established." Tyranny is not going. It's not going to have the final word over you. Terror. Is not going to have the final word of it. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be tyranny in the broken world or terror in the broken world. God has said these things are coming. Jerusalem's going to be conquered by a, the tyrant Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. But what he's saying is in the midst of all this, you have freedom. You have peace, you know, in the midst of all of this. Why? Because he's ultimately in control. And when it says all your sons will be taught by the Lord, that's a pretty incredible nod to the spirit at work in us. You know, the Lord speaks directly in us. He's made up his residence in these temples, these bodies that we have, and the spirit is leading the children. Um, that would have been something new to to teach on. Um, so in the church age, you have liberty even in the midst of tyranny. You have peace in the midst of terror. Um, the Lord now directly teaches the children. He teaches those. Um, and ultimately, you have victory. It's like, it's like the New Testament. As they're being you know, martyred and thrown in prison and suffering, what does Paul say? We are more than conquerors. It's like, what? what? <laughs> yeah. how, do, how, do you, how do you reconcile that? Well, Paul is getting at the same thing that Isaiah is getting at here. Like, you have an ultimate hope, a reality that God has conquered all things, yeah. and he gives a liberty to know that in the middle of the desert where there's no life at all, you can sing because God has spoken your victory already. Yeah. You're already victorious. So chapter 54 closes out with a promise of protection. Uh, verse 15, indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Um. It's, you know, verse 17, one of those uh, refrigerator magnet verses, again, your no weapon mm-hmm. formed against you shall prosper. Everybody likes to everybody likes to quote that one. I think sometimes we take it a little too far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. The fact is that uh, if somebody forms a machine gun and starts firing it at you, <laughs> I would advise you to take cover. I don't know that I would take this verse to be that kind of a promise and decide that tomorrow I'm going to march down to Drug Sales Central and, you know, stand in between the people shooting at each other going, wait in the name of the Lord. Uh, I think I'm still going to take cover. Uh, <laughs> when, when, the, when the drive-bys start, I think I'm still going to take cover. Um, yeah. 
But it is a it's a dramatic promise. It is a dramatic promise, but in the context, I mean, let's just even consider what Isaiah's been talking about. He's been talking about, you know, life coming to a land and and, and barrenness, a world that just doesn't produce fruit. Then he talks about how this city that he's going to establish is all of these precious jewels, and it's all of the, the walls and the foundations, and it, it's picked up again in Revelation 21. The Apostle John tells us what that's looking forward to, and what it's saying is, there is going to be a great victory. The kingdom of God, which with our own eyes, we look around and it's like, man, it feels like we're on our heels. It feels like in our culture, we're losing. It feels like we're losing the battle. We're losing our liberties. You know, everything is coming against us. And the Lord comes and says, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm the one who creates the smith who blows on the fire of coals. There's not a weapon that is made without my notice and allowance. There's None of this is out of my control. The fact that everything is falling apart, God's not up there wringing his hands. And what he's saying is, no weapon formed against you will prosper. Nothing can keep the kingdom of God from victory and from you inheriting that city that Isaiah has just described. There's nothing in this world world that can keep you from the love of God. Now, we look at that and go, oh, is he talking about the resurrection? Yes, I am absolutely talking about the resurrection. And the scriptures want us to understand that's not a consolation prize. God is giving you an eternal hope. You know, this life is a mist and a vapor. It's like, you know, it's here today, gone tomorrow. Like, gosh, it feels like just just yesterday I was, you know, on my mom's lap as a child, and here I am about to to bury her, that's going to be my fate. That's going to be your fate. I mean, this life just flashes by, and God is saying, don't put all of your hope here. I'm in absolute control. No weapon formed against you is going to rob you of what I have accomplished and what I have in store for you that is everlasting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the rest of the stuff that we spend our time worrying about, and I'm just as guilty as everybody who hears me saying this, you know. Man, I worry about all the kind of weapons that seem to be aimed at me or the church or my children's generation. And I think, oh, my goodness, how is, how is this? And the Lord here is saying, I got this. I got yeah. this. And there is nothing this world could throw at me that puts what I'm accomplished and what I have accomplished for you in the slightest bit of danger. No weapon, no media, no political party, no nothing can prosper against the kingdom of God. It is settled it is one. It is finished. Yeah. Now you sing, O barren one. Like it, it gives us permission to look around and go, I, I, don't, I don't see much reason to rejoice, but okay, I do trust the word of my God, and so I'm going to sing even in the desert. Yeah. Yeah. Once that final enemy is defeated, what else is there to fear? Yeah. Amen. I'll I'll just say this that last line of that we get into in in 54 it says this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord you know we've gone from the one servant and to now this is the 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 inheritance of all the servants so it's like he's accomplished this and he's welcomed us to come in and also join him as servants of the Lord and that's the heritage that's the legacy so what's the big concern of the barren woman there's there's no legacy. There's no children to carry on the name. There's no there's no hope. And how does this finish? No, no, no. That's the heritage. That's the legacy. It's not in what you accomplish or what gets done necessarily. It's what he's accomplished. That's your heritage. That's your legacy. Sing about that and let your vindication be from him. That's how this chapter closes out. It's awesome. Here's your legacy, O barren ones. It's mine. And what is the characteristic of the servants of the Lord? It's that their righteousness is from him. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, uh, that's a powerful close. And it's a good word. So uh, we're going we're gonna to let it stand on that. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us this week in Isaiah chapter 54 and all through so far this study, Isaiah, A Voice of Hope. If you would like to uh, take advantage of the personal worship study notes that come out each week that accompany this or to hear the sermons that are preached on Sunday that go along with this, uh, we invite you to visit our website at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O Vista Church. Dot com where you can find all of those things, including all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast, or you can get all of this 
in our free smartphone app. If you've got an iOS, Apple, or Android device, you can just go to the app store of your choice, and you can search for Rio Vista Community Church in there and find our free app. You can catch Out of Water on Google Podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, or on Spotify. Uh, Sam and I will be back next week with yet another from our series in the Book of Isaiah, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.